the top players and legends to the very best analysts around the world from wherever the beautiful game is played. This is BTP. Now, we're talking football. Yes, hello folks. Welcome to the second episode of the Global Football Show. I'm your host, Phil Brown, joined with my regular co-host here, the magnificent Cal McFadden, who you would have heard on the podcast last week. Today, we've got a jam-packed show. We've got Kieran McGuire on from The Price of Football. We'll break down a lot of the numbers that are going on in football right now, such as the Glazers numbers that were published last week. We'll really deep dive into that. We'll talk about Manchester United soon. Football manager, we'll talk about the tax issues that are going on there. Kieran, give him a follow at Price of Football. Kieran McGuire, there are very few in the game better at breaking down these types of things than Kieran, something that helps it make sense for all of us. And I'm delighted to do another football CFB, BTP co promotion. Calm, how are you doing, mate? I'm doing very well, Phil. I'm absolutely buzzing to be into our second show, and I cannot wait to speak to Kieran tonight. Yeah, I'm looking forward. I will also talk about Bundesliga. I'm looking forward to telling Callum he's wrong about some of his opinions, and I'm sure he's looking forward to telling me I'm wrong about Kai Havertz. I don't know how you could possibly say I'm wrong. I'm never wrong, um, but uh, him and my wife disagree. So I'm looking forward to that segment of the show. We'll, we'll have that up for you later. So, uh, Callum, really looking forward to speaking to Kieran. I never had a chance to speak to him before, but I follow him on Twitter. His work is absolutely fantastic, and it's great we have someone like this that can shed light on a lot of these things that if you're not a financial if you're not a financial expert or someone that works in that field, these numbers can be quite intimidating to understand. It's great to have somebody break them down. Andy Green used to do a fantastic job with this when the Glazer takeover happened. Um, so it's great to see someone like Kieran, not just with the Glazers, of course, but all throughout football, break these numbers down and have them make sense to football fans. Absolutely. He's, his work with the Price of Football podcast is magnificent. He's just reached over 500,000 listeners in the UK over the last week. And I cannot wait to, to get him on the show today. Folks, as promised, the fantastic Kieran Maguire from The Price of Football, the unrivaled Kieran Maguire. You must check out his podcast. Give him a follow on Twitter. Uh, this guy makes it all make sense, makes the football numbers make sense. And I personally am extremely grateful for a guy like this uh, who covers the game in a unique way and helps football fans understand what's going on inside the football club. Kieran, thanks for doing us today, mate. You're welcome. Looking forward to this. Kieran, let me ask you first, because you've done, I was reading your, your Twitter feed, you've done some fantastic work on breaking down what's going on at Manchester United. Their numbers were published last week. And I must say, some of your work just jumps out at me. And I'm, you, you mentioned there about the Glazers, their dividend payment and a deferred VAT bill. Can you describe exactly what you mean there? Well, um, no, normally, uh, every business has to pay VAT on a monthly basis. So they collect it from us, the fans, when we buy our tickets, they collect it from when they're selling hospitality packages, and then they pass it on to the government once a month. Um, and in March, the Chancellor said, we've got, a, got this global crisis. Everybody's got a bit of a panic. Everybody's got a cash flow problem. If you want, pay us, pay us next March. And, and United said, okay, yeah, we'll take advantage of that. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing illegal, nothing untoward. Um, if Manchester United have got a cash flow problem, they've done the correct thing. At the same time, they're paying a dividend of £11 million to the shareholders. Now, if you've got a cash flow problem, what you don't do is hand out pocket money to the club's owners. And they've also gone on to the stock market and spent another £3.5 million buying Manchester United shares 
to prop up the share price. Under normal circumstances, I'd say that's that's a logical thing to do. If you if you've got spare cash, then do it. But they seem to want to have their cake and eat it. They want to not pay the cash to the government, but do want to spend cash looking after the owners. Now, you know and I know that the owners are in the States. So effectively, what we've got here is the UK taxpayer helping out the Glazer family. And I don't care whether you're a United fan or not a United fan, it stinks. Agree with that. Another thing, Kieran, this week that really shocked lots of us was the fact that Manchester United are suing the makers of Football Manager. I mean, that game and its predecessor, Championship Manager, had been around since 1992, and they've been putting the Manchester United name in that game since then without any complaints. So why all of a sudden is there such a fuss being caused by United? Um, I, I think part of this is due to uh, politics in the sense that I don't know whether you, you're aware that uh, uh, Electronic Arts and Konami, so Ele Electronic Arts make uh, FIFA, the game, and Konami make Pro Evolution Soccer. Pro Evolution Soccer have just signed an exclusive deal with Juventus. So you can't have a Juventus team in FIFA. Um, there's now there's a big battle between the two. And I think what United have said, well, if, uh, if, if Juventus have got an exclusive deal, why can't we have an exclusive deal for Manchester United? It's a big brand, big club and so on. And... Uh, the problem is, is that my understanding is that the the makers of Football Manager, which everybody plays, and one of the really weird things we're seeing is Manchester United claim, oh, we, we, well, we've never heard of uh, Football Manager. Even though if you go on YouTube, you will find Ole Gunnar Solskjaer saying he learned part of his management skills from playing Football Manager. But apparently this, this you know, you see United seems to be acting very strange. United want more money out of the deal. That's the long and the short of it. Um, and, and they are saying that the words Manchester and United are unique to them. So uh, on, on Football Manager, they don't use the Manchester United crest because it's not being licensed or something of that nature. But the words Manchester and United um, are unique and, and therefore they've effectively got intellectual property. They've got copyright in respect of them and things of that nature. But... The word United is not exclusive to Manchester. In fact, if you go on Twitter today, you will find Sheffield United fans saying, we were the first club called United. And also, of course, we've got Newcastle United and West Ham United and Southend United and the Leeds United and lots of other clubs. And Manchester United aren't even the only club in Manchester, so they can't claim the word Manchester and they can't claim the word United, in my opinion. United are saying, well, it's, it's all wrong. Um, and I think this is the thin end of the wedge because if they're going to seek extra royalties, does that mean that every time we're discussing Manchester United on a podcast or in a newspaper, do we have to pay royalties to the club? I think this is where it gets a bit ridiculous and what's never added into the cost benefit is how many fans are fans of Manchester United today and also buy football merchandise, uh, including their players, uh, as a result of falling in love with the game through, man through Football Manager. I also want to ask you, Ken, about uh, United's tax issues because you brought up something really, really interesting there. You said United could be, uh, are they being investigated for tax issues? What's the situation there? Right. It, it said in the small print of the accounts that there's, there's an ongoing issue 
with regards to Manchester United's tax issues. Um, I'll be honest, they are not the only club to which this is happening. And United fans are saying, some United fans are saying, I'm picking them. I'm not. Manchester United were the only club that bought out their results on Friday. So mm -hmm. therefore, you, some, somebody's going to look at them. And, and what happens is that on the Thursday, United brought out a press release, no mention of the VAT, no mention of the tax investigation. And then the accounts come out 24 hours later. There's only one idiot looking at the small print, and I'm that idiot. So I just say, look, folks, th this, is, this, is what's, this is what's happening in the small print. I think if United, and it's a bit like what we're saying, and I'm not going to get political here, it's a bit like what we're saying with Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson, is that if you are not up front with people, they think you've got something to hide. And the, sl and the longer it takes for it to drip, drip, drip out, the more people think that there's something wrong. There's, there's nothing wrong with being investigated for tax. It's happening at Newcastle. It's happening at Crystal Palace. It's happening at lots of other clubs. And the reason why it's happening is as follows. Let's say that you're, a, you're playing for Manchester United and you want 200 grand a week. Um, if all of that is paid to you as an employee, you're going to be, you're going to be taxed at 45% on that. If 100,000, let's say that we split it 50-50 and Manchester United pay £100,000 to you as your salary and they pay £100,000 a week to you via an image rights company in the Cayman Islands. And um, it's in which case that will be taxed under company rates and company rates are 19% instead of 45 isn't that similar to what Rangers did with the, um, the, EBT? the EBTs? Yes. I think, I think that was slightly more complex. Um, but it was a tax avoidance scheme in, in essence. It, it is tax avoidance and, and tax avoidance is legal. So yeah, there's tax evasion and there's tax avoidance and, and the accountants and the lawyers, they, they get their hard-ons about the difference between the two and they argue it off with the revenue. And frankly, it's, it's all tedious stuff. What, what the tax authorities have said is, come on, guys, don't, don't take the piss. Right. We'll give you 20%. We'll allow you to give 20% of a player's wages to the image rights company. And if you, if you take no more than that, we're happy with it. We get a decent amount of money. You get to pay a little bit more, a little less tax. Everybody's happy. Right. Some clubs, and, and I don't know, you know because you know, it, it, these, are, these are private discussions between Manchester United and the tax authorities, some clubs have arrangements where it appears that historically they've paid more than that, and therefore the tax authorities are saying, we want a bit more money. Sure. You talked, Kieran, there about um, being up front with fans, and that's something that clubs like to sometimes hide in the small print, as, as we've talked about on numerous occasions. Can you just clear this up for us. Can you quantify the cost of the Glazers' ownership since they took over of Manchester United? And by that, I mean how much they've taken out of the club in dividends and the financial charges that the club have faced? Okay. Um, each year, Manchester United pay a dividend of around about £22 million. Now, because it's paid in dollars, uh, you know, the, the, the sterling value sort of get, wobbles up and down a bit, but it's normally around about 22 to 23 million pounds. They've been doing that for the last five years. So that's 110 million pounds. In 2010, they took out a dividend of, I think it was two, about 220 million just in one year. 
Um, and, and that was because Manchester United were raising money. So the, so the total amount that the shareholders have taken out, um, I estimate to be around about 330, 340 million pounds. Um, since, since 2005. They didn't take anything out before 2010. Then there was a big gap till 2016. And since then, it's been around about 22, 23 million pounds a year. The other thing that Manchester United did is that when the Glazers bought the club, because the Glazers didn't have any money, they effectively mortgaged the, the, the United to the hilt. And since 2005, they borrowed, they borrowed around about 700 million pounds for the deal. And since 2005, Manchester United have paid £828 million in interest to the banks. Now, some people would say that money would have been better spent on improving the infrastructure at Old Trafford, on investing in playing squad. But, you know, when you look at some of the turkeys they've signed, you know, Fellaini and, uh, you know, some of the others... Um, yeah, perhaps the money would be better off going to the bankers. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not one to say. It could be that Mr. Tompkins from the HSBC mm. has a better chance of mm. nutmegging a, a centre-half and sticking it in the, back, <laughs> in the far corner than some of Manchester United signings. Uh, now we're getting personal. No, listen, a um, couple of other things here. Magnificent analysis. And I have to say, say as you know, the fan, I'm extremely grateful for you doing it. It's very difficult not to get angry. Some of this I was aware of, but when you hear it, it's just eye-watering. You said a couple of things there that uh, set alarm bells ringing. If you're talking about the, the buyback of shares and you talk about um, the firm VAT bills possibly a sign of a cash flow issue, um, do you think you end up a cash flow problem? No, no, no. I, I think United are just saying, if, if the government's allowing us to do it, let, let's do it. I, I just think that from a public relations sure. point of view, when United are registered in the Cayman Islands, when they're traded in the US, when their shareholders are in the US, it looks bad as, as a UK taxpayer that I, I don't mind small businesses being supported via furlough schemes and also give United a lot of credit. They are paying all of their matchday staff for the, all of the remaining yes. home games of this season. So give them credit for that. They've raised a lot of money for, for food banks and things of that nature. For those fans who were due to go to Austria for the match that was called off, they gave them... So, you know, Manchester United is not an evil organisation. I'm not anti-Manchester United. I've got... Yeah, I, I, I played half my life for Trafford Cricket Club. You know, half the mm. lads I share a dressing room with every week are mad keen reds. So, you know, yeah. I'm not, not anti-Manchester United. It, it, I think it just looks really bad. Sure. But they are, you've got this very rich, very wealthy organisation, which is effectively using the UK taxpayer to improve its cash flow position. If Manchester United this summer go out and sign some players and they're not paying their VAT bill, that doesn't look too clever, does it? And, and it's, it, 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 I think it's a perception issue. United have a, an image problem as a result of the Glazers, and this isn't helping. So all of the good things that they have done, and, they have, and, and I've, I've praised them on the show, mm -hmm. um, which I do with, with Kevin. You know, we've, we've said positive things about them in respect of the way that they've treated the staff, that the fact that they're not using the furlough scheme, uh, and, and we've castigated Liverpool and Spurs mm -hmm. and those clubs which have taken advantage of it. So United are a shining light in the opposite direction. All of that, big own goal. I completely agree. There's some wonderful people that work at the football club, and fortunate enough to know, and, and, and they are genuinely magnificent people who have their heart in the right place. I want to ask you a final question because 
funds always process everything through this lens of, okay, what does that mean in terms of what we've got to spend this summer? In the accounts that said they have access, they've 90 million pounds cash there or thereabouts, plus access to 150 million revolving credit. But if they take access, if they access that revolving credit, that would push the debt up close to 600 million there or thereabouts. Also, what's the cost of accessing that credit? Because surely there's finance costs and there's interest costs and everything else with the debt increase. And I think it increased primarily due to the currency uh, valuations. Um, would it co- what's the cost we needed access in that credit? Will it significantly increase? No, no. I, I think they should be able to borrow 140, 150 million pounds at four or five percent. So even if they borrow it for a year, they're talking about another seven million pounds in interest. That's that's the wages of a thir- one first team player. Okay. So so that they certainly can afford it. If you compare how much they're paying in interest each year, again at present it's round about round about eighteen to twenty million a year. Um, under the in the first years of the Glazers. They, they were paying up to 111 million pounds a year in interest. So compared to where they were, you know, they, they, were, in, they were in a bad position because they, they'd broken some of the, the, the covenants that were outstanding on the loans, which meant that at one point they were paying interest at 16 and a quarter percent. Now that's, that's credit card rates, right. you know, five or 600 million pound debt. Yeah, that, that wasn't too clever. Um, since then, on the back of their very successful commercial arm, on the back of Sir Alex winning Premier League after Premier League, getting into the Champions League, they've managed to get some of that debt down a bit, um, and, and therefore they've rescheduled the loans. And now they've got they've actually got two outstanding loans. They're paying on one of those two and a quarter percent interest. The other one three and three and three quarters. It's it's a walk in the park. Sustainable. Kieran, uh, or Calum, you got anything else for Kieran before we let him go, mate? Yeah, Kieran, uh, this question's broader than just Manchester United. Last season in the transfer market, it was a seller's market. Manchester United paid £80 million or thereabouts for Harry Maguire after months of haggling. Crystal Palace were able to stand firm and say, unless a club pays us 70 or £80 million for Wilfred Zaha, he won't leave the club. And they were able to hold firm. Do you think the market's changed this summer? from a seller's market to now becoming a buyer's market? Yeah, 180 degree turn. The, the buyers have got all of the power this summer. And this is where I think United are in a strong position. Uh, yeah, we saw uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer saying three or four weeks ago, and he got criticised for it, and, and I defended him on this. Um, he said they're going to exploit the market if they can. The, 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 re- the reason why is that if you are a club that has just been relegated out of the the Premier League, you're going to drop into a championship which has got a 50-50 chance of not taking place next season because the costs of putting matches on and paying the wages of players and paying for COVID-19 tests when you've got no match match day income, realistically until January at the very earliest, probably not for the whole season. Can can you honestly think that the government's going to say, we're happy with 35,000 people turning up at a, at a championship game when we've got no vaccine. Never even thought about the cost of putting these games on versus making a profit or even breaking even. This, that's, you know, I had a Peter Brian owner on about two, three weeks ago, Darren McCantney, and he was saying that um, if 
they have to pay back the television revenue and there's no football until we get a vaccine. Uh, it would be Armageddon for yeah. lower league football. They just wouldn't be able to survive. So um be really interesting. Um, Kieran, there's so much we didn't get to ask you about. I would have loved to have uh, looked at the uh, Sheffield United, Newcastle United situation, whether there's undue influence between those two. And of course, the piracy cost the Premier League in Saudi Arabia. Um, if you have a minute, would you comment on it really quick? Yeah, sure. Um, Go ahead. Yep. Newcastle United, I fully expect that deal to go through. The, the owners and directors test focuses on two things. Do you have a criminal record? No evidence of that. Do you have the money to fund this club for the next couple of years? And can you evidence that? Well, if the Saudi Arabian investment fund hasn't got any money, God knows how the rest of the clubs are going to survive. So they, they should pass. I think the only issue is that there are some people, and I think this is just gossip and people who've got a don't like the Saudi Arabian, Saudi Arabian regime. They are trying to link the owners to be out Q, which is the pirate uh, version of the Premier League, which is quite significant in the Middle East. Um, if they can find a link, then the Premier League's got a problem. But I think proving that link will be difficult. There's, there's no evidence. So uh, you know, we, we could be having this conversation next week and the deal has been approved. So I think... Mm -hmm. Um, Newcastle United are fine. In terms of Sheffield United, the Saudi royal family is huge because the original King Saud, I think he fathered 50 kids. So therefore, if you've got 50 kids and they've got offspring as well, can you see, I mean, I, I can sell from your accent that you're from... Uh, uh, a bit like myself, typical Irish family. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, and you know, I've got... My, my mum's from a family of nine and my dad's from a family of five. You know, half of, half of Ireland I'm related to. You know, I, I go across and, you know, I'm, I've got cousins upon cousins. You know, and you, you, you know exactly. Well, yes. you multiply that. Sure, of course. Yeah. So can you see that everybody, or, you know, half, half the population. Um, so th there's, no, there's no close family link between the people involved with Newcastle and the people involved with, with Sheffield United. Um, apart from the fact that they came from the same country. Same but, place. you know, Stan Kroenke, he's the Arsenal owner. He comes from the United States, as does the Glazers. Nobody's saying mm. that they're related. Uh, mm. Although, if you go to the Midwest of America, you know, uh, often, you. <laughs> often sisters and wives are the same woman. Um, but, you know, we, I don't think we're talking that type of relationship. We'll go ahead and leave it there, Karen. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, some, fun, some fascinating insight there into the governance of football and, of course, the finance of football um, and some really interesting stuff. I'd love to get you back on the show, talk to you again sometime. Great stuff for the podcast. Keep doing it. We need people like yourself shedding light on these, some eye-watering things there. I'm very balanced in your views. Can we want to say goodbye, mate? Thank you very much, Kieran. And I would encourage everyone listening to this to follow Kieran at The Price of Football on Twitter and his podcast, The Price of Football podcast, along with Kevin Day. Thank you so much, Kieran. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Cheers, Callum. Kieran. Stay safe. Stay Thanks, indoors. Man. Don't go to Durham. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Delighted to say that we're joined by Derek Ray. We're normally used to hearing you, Derek, commentate on the Bundesliga, but I know at the moment, because of where you're based in Massachusetts, that's difficult. That's right, Callum. Uh, I live here in the Boston area, and obviously it's a long way to Germany, and flying is simply not an option at the moment, nor is it going to be an option for the foreseeable future. But I've been entertaining myself and 
hopefully a few other people out there with videos from underneath my cherry tree, which is in full bloom at the moment. <laughs> so it's, from my point of view anyway, it's a good substitute. It, it, Bundesliga has at least given us some glimpse of normality back. Um, when you've been watching it, uh, Derek, it's not perfect, but at least it's something. And, and the first week I watched it was a bit weird to get used to a new normal. This week certainly was much more watchable to me. And it is better enough. And how have you found it yourself? I've actually been surprised, Phil, by the standards and by the fitness, all things considered, because this was a long layoff. This was, you know, the equivalent of a closed season and then some. And when they got back into training, it really wasn't for very long on a full contact basis. We're talking about six, seven, eight days, depending upon the club in which state they're based. So, you know, I think I went into it with fairly low expectations the first week. I thought, you know, it might not be what we normally expect, what we normally see. But I think the football has been compelling. And what I'm pleased about is that, uh, and I would say this as a Bundesliga commentator and a German football aficionado of long standing, um, I'm pleased that people who don't normally have eyes on the Bundesliga are now paying attention. And I think from what I'm hearing, most people have come to the conclusion that, yeah, you know, maybe they've been missing out on something by not watching the Bundesliga. And okay, you know, we know that when the Premier League comes back, when La Liga comes back, people will, will tend to revert to the, the previous allegiances, so to speak. But I think, and probably I like to think, but I, but I would expect that there'll be many more people who on the basis of the last couple of weeks and hopefully the next couple of weeks will be thinking about the Bundesliga as well. In terms of the league, Derek, lots of people have been focusing on the key individuals. They've been focusing on Erling Haaland. They've been focusing on Kai Havertz, Jaden Sancho. But I want to ask you a question about RB Leipzig as a team. They, they beat Mainz 8-0 earlier on this season. They beat them 5-0 at the weekend. The, my only thing that disappoints me is the fact that because of the Red Bull model, they do sell on their best talent after a few years. Do you think if they were somehow able to retain Timo Werner this summer that they could challenge and push Bayern and Dortmund next season the whole way? Well, I know that there were a few people who thought that even this season that might be a possibility. I wasn't among them. I did expect and do expect Leipzig to be a Champions League side again. Um, I think in terms of their model, it's been very successful so far. They identify young talent um, that is particular to what they're looking for as far as young talent goes. And then, yeah, they do at a certain point admit that they will sell that talent on. But the thing about the system and the genius of it is that they can more or less have this big squad of talent and they can win things. There's no question about that. And they sort of start all over again. And I look at the, the team that they have now, the squad that they have now. Uh, and Josef Paulsen, for example, was playing for them when they were in the third division and trying to make their way up. And just made his 250th competitive appearance in the game against Mainz at the weekend. And that's a club record, one he's very proud of. But somebody like Paulsen and somebody like Emil Forsberg, another of the pioneers, if you like, who was there before they were a top division side, Players like that are no longer guaranteed a place because the depth of squad is so great. And, you know, they've signed people like Danny Olmo recently, like Patrick Schick, admittedly on loan for the time being from Roma. They would like to make that a permanent deal. Um, Christopher Nkunku is another one. So when I look at Leipzig now, 
I have a very hard time <laughs> predicting, and this is difficult as a commentator because you want to be able to predict, but predicting what team they're going to put out from game to game because it could change radically. Um, they have so many options. So I think that is what they're doing. They're building something that is sustainable, something that is deep. And, um, you know, from a footballing point of view, you can argue about the marketing side and about sponsorship and about the traditional German model. But from a pure footballing point of view, I think what they're doing has a lot to commend it. Derek, upon this resumption, um, it hasn't gone well for Schalke. Viva Wagner has some big concerns there. The Schalke 3-0 defeat uh, against relegation threat in Augsburg at the weekend. They dominated possession. Um, no, I think they're two shots on goal the entire, the entire game. I think this is the fourth defeat in five. Uh, high concern should David Wagner be? I think very concerned, to be honest, because they came roaring out of the traps at the beginning of the year, you know, the second half of the season following the winter break against Gladbach in that Friday night game. And I think we all thought, here we go again with Schalke. Uh, David Wagner has really got them playing and they look fit and they look keen and they seem to understand what he wants to get out of the players. But they're in a tailspin. And, um, you know, I think if you are a Schalke fan at the moment you have to be a bit concerned that they look somehow sort of burned out and you're right they did have all the possession um, that you would want to have against Augsburg but never really convinced with that possession it was sort of meaningless possession and Augsburg were very clever I thought in how they played because they almost sort of said to Schalke you can have the ball and there are some teams in Germany who are better without the ball than they are with it, which, mm -hmm. which always seems a bit strange to people who don't watch the Bundesliga. But Schalke, one of those teams that um, seem to be making progress under David Wagner. I wouldn't worry for him right now. Um, you know, there's enough of a cushion. But they're sort of heading in the wrong direction after all the good work. And it was fabulous work that was done by Wagner in the first half of the season. Maybe it was a slightly false position. Maybe there were nowhere near as good as that position might suggest. And this is just a, a sort of a natural correction, but it's not great. Two traditional clubs I'm desperate to talk to you about, Derek. Werder Bremen and um, Hamburg. Now, I know Hamburg aren't in the top division, so I'll come to them following on from the first question. The first question is, Werder got a win at the weekend over Freiburg. They were, they, there was the incident where VAR was on their side, which was great if you're a fan of Werder. Do you think they've got enough to get out of the trouble in the relegation zone because they've got a game in hand over Dusseldorf and Mainz. And with that win, is this, is this give, has this given them the potential to turn the corner? Huge win for Werder Bremen and Florian Kohfeldt. And I know uh, Bremen fans, I speak to a few of them, were holding their breath just going back to that VAR decision at the end of the Freiburg game on Saturday. They are in a funny position because confidence has been really low and we have just seen it ebb away for, for weeks and weeks now before the stoppage and then coming back and being trounced by, admittedly, a very good Bayer Leverkusen. But they... Pulled out all the stops against Freiburg. It was the best they've played for a while. They were a bit fortunate, you might say. They, they were able to ride their luck at times. Um, I just think that the composition of that team now looks a bit suspect. I didn't expect to be saying that at the start of the season. I thought Werder Bremen would be another of the teams that could once again push for Europe. But that hasn't happened at all. Um, encouragingly, it really all started, I thought, at the back. I watched that game quite closely on Saturday. And uh, in defence, Velkovic, really authoritative, you know, very good in the air. 
Um, likewise, Niklas Moisander, who, who sits deep and, and uses all his experience. And the other players in front of them seem to take great confidence. So it, it was you know, much better from Werder Bremen. They can still do it. I certainly believe in their coach, Florian Kohfeldt, because I, I think he is somebody who talks the right way, has the right ideas, didn't suddenly become a bad coach. You know, I'm fully convinced if he were to lose his job, somebody else would come calling in Germany, whether it's in the top division or at the higher echelons of the second. But there's still this hope for Werder Bremen. There's such a traditional club, as you've said, it would be a shame to see them going down. And on, on Hamburg, we, yeah. I, I mentioned the fact they are in um, the two Bundesliga, the, the second division. Stuttgart are in there as well, which people sometimes forget. Are you confident Hamburg can return to the Bundesliga this season because they are trailing the leaders by seven points? The answer is no. I'm not confident. That's not to say they won't come up because um, you know you have this incredible race in the second division. Hamburg, we should probably tell everybody, drew with Arminia Bielefeld in the top of the table clash on Sunday. I watched a fair bit of that. Nil-nil, um, defences were on top. Hamburg took the game to Bielefeld. But, you know, Armenia seven points ahead of Hamburg. I don't think they're going to let that slip. So then it comes down to Hamburg and Stuttgart. I mean, two absolute giants in German football terms, second and third, respectively. And they meet this Thursday in Stuttgart. So that is going to be a real treat for fans of the Zweite Bundesliga, the second division. Um, they're better this season, Hamburg, with Dieter Hecking in charge. They have made strides. Last season was just a write-off. that They never convinced me at all, never looked as though they were going to make their way back up. It could still happen for them, but they sort of need everything to fall into place. Where I worry about them is at the back. I think the defense is still wobbly. Um, he's had all sorts of all manner of combinations in terms of the back four. I think it's 10 different back four combinations. And being without Gideon Jung, the tallest defender there, doesn't help. He played Dirk van Drongelen, um, who, who doesn't always play in the game uh, on Sunday against Armenia Bielefeld. So I, I think this is going to be touch and go. Um, Thursday will tell us a lot. If Hamburg lose that game away to Stuttgart, I would begin to worry about them because if they finish third and go into the playoff, and that's no guarantee, by the way, because Heidenheim were very well coached by Frank Schmidt are coming up on the rails, very close to both Hamburg and Stuttgart. But if they were to fall into third and be the playoff team, I'm not sure I would fancy any of the second division teams against um, one of the Bundesliga sides in a two-legged playoff. Eric, one of the great things, obviously, uh, is that we've got a lot of new eyes on the Bundesliga. We're seeing players that people are getting a glimpse of players beyond the obvious. Obviously, we've got a big game coming up tomorrow with Dortmund and Bayern. <clears throat> but um, we've got to see Alfonso Davies from a North American perspective, who has looked absolutely magnificent. We've got young Reina, of course, who is uh, starting to break through at Dortmund. Ashraf Hakimi, who another is another magnificent young player. We've got to see. Um, with this game at this uh, tomorrow, Dortmund and Bayern. Bayern were a bit weird at the weekend. They were cruising. Then they let Eintracht Frankfurt back into the game. They ended up finishing it quite comfortably. But uh, big, big game tomorrow. How do you see that going? It's a very hard one to call, Phil. Um, I think it would take a brave person to convincingly predict the outcome of mm -hmm. Dortmund against Bayern. Um, and again, with no fans inside the stadium, what does that yeah. do to the dynamic? I, I honestly don't know. I mean, the mm -hmm. irony is that this will be the most watched Borussia Dortmund Bayern fixture around the world probably ever. I mean, maybe yeah. that Champions League final in 2013 at Wembley uh, would top it. But I mean, this is going to be very close given the fact that there are so many eyes on the Bundesliga. So um, 
I think that Dortmund go into it with an awful lot of confidence based on recent results and performances. Um, Lucien Favre, the coach, has stuck with this sort of 3-4-3 setup. He's had that in place going all the way back to match day 13. And he's probably wishing he went to it earlier because uh, everything has really fallen into place. They've had that one defeat in the second half of the season away to Leverkusen, probably the mm -hmm. match of the season in the Bundesliga. Uh, but apart from that, they've just done everything right. And you get the feeling with Dortmund, if it comes to a scoring contest, they will outscore you. If it comes to a more sort of waiting game, uh, you know, we saw that at the weekend against Wolfsburg, then they'll play that one uh, and handle it too. So uh, Mats Hummels is very important to them because obviously he was, you know, at Bayern, uh, previously at Dortmund, now back at Borussia Dortmund. And he had to go off at halftime because of a minor Achilles injury on Saturday. But the word today is he's 99% certain to start. And that's really important. Having Hummels as your sort of centerpiece, Akanji, Piszczek, another experienced player beside Hummels. And then you build from there. But I think that there is so much flair. And, you know, I, I repeat that word confidence. I think when you have attackers who are so confident that they will succeed um, in your ranks. And Julian Brandt falls in that category based on what he's done since the restart. Torgan Azar, likewise, yeah. I thought fantastic at the weekend. And, um, and Holland, of course, you know, who yes. is just unstoppable. And yes, then, so. you know, somebody like Jaden Sancho, imagine this, Sancho, albeit, you know, has been just nursing his, his minor injury. Mm -hmm. um, Sancho might not start. Yeah. What a player to have coming off the bench with 16 assists to go with 14 goals this season in the Bundesliga. So um, it is a, an endless array of, of talent. Bayern, of course, no less talented. And you mentioned Davies. He has been a revelation. Oh. I don't think Bayern thought they were getting a left back, but that's how it has turned out. And just gives them another attacking weapon. Thomas Müller is revitalized mm -hmm. since Hansi Flick became the coach. Lewandowski's exploits speak for themselves. They're not going to have Thiago, which is going to be important because he's having one of his best ever seasons. Um, but they've got Leon Goretzka, yeah, exactly. who can play in that position. So, um, yeah, it, it's going to be a real treat for lovers of, of good quality football. Derek, before we let you go, we need to ask you the, the obvious question. What's your prediction for tomorrow? My prediction for the game is, and this might sound like I'm sitting on the fence a little bit, um, but, but I hope... That, it comes across what I'm trying to say. I don't think Borussia Dortmund will lose. I'm not saying they're going to win, mm. but I don't think they will lose. In other words, I'm, I'm not going for a Bayern win this time. But of course, a draw wouldn't be the worst result in the world for Bayern. I think there'll be goals. So I'm going to go for 2-2 this time. I can't let you go, Derek, without asking you quickly. Sell an argument. How good is Kai Havertz? Kai Havertz, to <laughs> me, is once in a generation. That's my answer to that one, Phil. I, I honestly... I. I I've been watching him since his first appearances for Leverkusen a few years ago. And immediately I thought, wow, look at, look at this kid. And again, that word confidence, immediately had confidence. Doesn't ever look stressed on the pitch. Looks as though it's just what he was born to do. And um, I know everybody in Germany is very excited about him. I see a different facet to his game every time I watch him. That's how good he is. You know, yes. you, think, you think you know a player, you think you know what is what's in his repertoire, and then you see something different, whether it's, you know, playing as a false nine, as we've seen of, seen of late, whether it's his ability in the air. Uh, I mean, you know, his weight of pass, his ability to shoot from, from way out. 
we, we know all that, but we're continuing to learn about him and he's obviously continuing to learn about himself. So yeah, absolutely. I think many years from now, we'll all be saying how privileged were we to have watched Kai Havertz coming yeah. through and then ultimately in his prime. I think that's a brilliant analysis, Derek, because uh, if you look at the players he's been compared with, he's gone from being compared to Mesut Ozil to Michael Bollock, which just confirms how complete he is as a footballer yeah. because he displays so many, like you say, different facets, different qualities. And my colleague here has the look of a defeated man who's going to argue with me that he is Uh-oh. not one of the top. <laughs> That's okay. Listen, we thrive on arguments in this business, don't we? We thrive on that. Listen, especially an Irishman and a Scotch man. It's born and it's on our blood. <laughs> well, it would, be worse if it, it would be worse if it were one of the two of you and an Englishman. <laughs> <laughs> Derek, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for, having, for coming on, mate. Absolute pleasure. And uh, look forward to hearing our commentary tomorrow here stateside. So thanks very much. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Callum. Take care. I was Derek Rave with us. Joining us has talked about the Bundesliga. Always a class act. I've had Derek on my own podcast at BTP for way back to the very beginning. He's been always so generous with, my time, with his time and uh, genuinely a mentor for myself whenever I first started out. And always such a class act and fantastic analysis on the Bundesliga there, Callum. And quite rightly says Kai Havertz is a generational talent. I agree in the sense that you can say he's a generation of talent, but Kieran Maguire was on earlier on talking about the fact that it's a buyer's market this summer. Um, money will be tight at the top clubs. Now, at the weekend, there was Monch and Gladbach were playing Leverkusen. I was actually more impressed by someone else in the game. I was more impressed by Marcus Turam. I think, I think a club in England has to go for Turam, and I'll tell you for why. He will cost probably half the price that Havertz would cost. He is a young striker. He's got eight goals this season, but he's crucially got eight assists. He's got the same number of assists as Havertz has got. And for me, he's more powerful and more direct, and he would suit the Premier League more. So you were talking earlier on about United. I would go for Turam. Well, I mean, we're talking about two different players. Turam, a young player. uh, He didn't have a great time in France. I'm not totally uh, familiar with his entire career. Yeah, I watched him last week. He was very, very good. Uh, strong forward but look performing at a club like Manchester United with the pressure is absolutely immense you have to have more qualities than that so if you're talking about Marcus Thuram who would you drop for him would you drop Rashford for him would you drop Martial for him would you drop um, Mason Greenwood for him to me he's not any better than those three I want for a striker at Manchester United to be on a very least on a par with those three or better so that the quality isn't doesn't drop when we bring someone like that in. For me, Kai Havertz, just like Derek said, look, youngest player in, Bar- in Bundesliga history uh, to play 100 games, youngest player in Bundesliga history to play 50 games, Bayern Leverkusen's youngest ever debutant. And if you look at the, the trajectory of his career, every year improvement, improvement, improvement. And just as Derek said, not just improvement in one area of his game, improvement in so many different areas, scores goals, he creates goals, he's lovely on the ball, he, he reminds you of so many different players. When you've got a young player that reminds you of so many different players because he's got such a wide range of qualities, that's a generational talent. Uh, and the cultural qualities, Germans are quite pragmatic people. <laughs> um, they usually settle wherever they go. I would love to see a player like that at Manchester United. Way, I, I look, Marcus Thuram, you may be right. He's, of course, got a very famous father, Lillian Thuram. But you've absolutely lost your mind if you take him over Kai Havertz. 
In terms of taking him over, Kai Havertz, I'm just telling you as it Don't is. Don't you back up. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm just telling you as it is. Clubs this summer do not have the money to spend tons of they don't have the the resources to spend hundreds of millions of pounds so I don't think you spend 80 million pounds on a player like Havertz now I think he would benefit from another year in Germany and that's why I would go and get Turam you get him for half the price I'm telling you well listen you're talking about a kid make it him for half a price because he's half a player you're talking about a young player that at 20 years of age listen I remember when well you won't but I remember when you had the same Brian Robson for a million and a half pounds and at the time just a couple of years prior to that, you could have bought United for that. And I remember you know, we were taking heavy criticism at the time. And Ron Atkinson said, to, pay, to get the best, you have to pay for the best. You have to pay top prices. And that was one of the best signings United made in our history. Because nobody, nobody could question whether that was worth the money. Just like Kieran said, it's a buyer's market. Bayer Leverkusen is a club that doesn't get massive. It survives on a lot of funding from Bayer itself and doesn't have massive... Uh, massive the bear the bear arena I think it only holds like twenty odd thousand. It's not a club that has massive resources, so you could probably get them out of there at a good price. They'll be desperate not to sell them to one of the big top German clubs, the Bayern Munich or something like that. But, so but this is the thing though, them. Phil. This is the thing, Phil. Though that I don't get what you're saying here. Manchester United signed Fernandez in January. Fernandez is excelling in that role that Havertz plays. So what on earth would you do? Well, I think that Fernandez can play multiple different roles. And just like Derek said, so can Kai Havertz. He can play as a false nine. And you, you know, you can't, in my opinion, if you're going to find a place for Pogba in that midfield, which Neda will have to do, then you're going to find a place for Havertz. Now, I admit, I would, you would have to sell Pogba in order to play Kai Havertz. But I think that all the top clubs in the world in that position, having more than one player that can create. Because what happens if one of those players gets injured? Neda become really one-dimensional tactically. They're back to, we have to hit you on the counter-attack because we don't have the depth of quality in midfield to have to change the game. A football club besides Manchester United with, who are competing on all fronts cannot have one player. Anything can happen in a key position like that that's key to your tactical setup. My other worry for Havertz in the Premier League is coming in with such height being compared to Michael Ballack. My worry is that we'll turn him into another Deli Alley, a player who has immense potential, a player who's spoken about as a generational talent. And then when he's, because, and, I'm, and again, I think he's an exceptional player. I would agree he's a generational talent, but it's a whole different ballgame coming to Manchester United as an £80 million player and having that pressure thrust on you. Can he handle that? I don't know if he can. Well, I mean, that, that nobody really knows until you do it. I mean, you can really only you can guess about a person's character. But if you look at the kid's character, he's progressed every year. The pressure on him now already is immense. He's Bayer Leverkusen's best player. He's a kid that's already a full international for Germany. This is a kid that has taken everything in a stride. So there's no reason to suggest that this kid couldn't handle the next step. At some point, that's going to come in his career. He's not going to stay at Bayer Leverkusen for the rest of his career. Um, there's lots of kids his age, 20 years of age, playing for top clubs. We just talked about one Alfonso Davis, who's gone to Bayern Munich from uh, MLS, from Canada, and handled that transition fine. Bruno Fernandes, look at the pressure that was on his shoulders to come in at Manchester United. Immense scrutiny, big signing at a time when United were playing, were playing okay, but he was supposed to be the catalyst. And every once in a while you get a player that says, I'm ready for the pressure, I'm ready for the test, Give it, let, let me have it. And I think... At some point, this next move is going to be either to Bayern Munich or one of the top clubs. If United wait 
until this economy recovers, then Havertz price doubles. You challenged me on Kai Havertz there in Turan, which is mm-hmm. entitled to do, but I want to challenge you in something. Right. He's speaking off air recently, and you've you've come out with this ludicrous comment that the transfer window should be all year round. And yeah. to be honest with you, I just don't understand it. I can't understand it. Take a look at the consequences of having condensed windows. First of all, what has improved versus what we had before? If you look at what we had before, this the the whole purpose of the transfer window was to bring about a couple of things. It was to stop clubs. Um, buying as soon as the player got injured. It was to make sure that young players were given a chance uh, and developed. And it was to make sure that uh, football clubs managed themselves financially uh, sensibly. But if you take a look at the biggest, the, the, the biggest unintended consequences of this window and the biggest, um, those who have borne the brunt of this, most definitely being small clubs that rely heavily on revenue the year year round. Small clubs don't have the luxury of being able to survive in between, especially now with their, their revenue significantly reduced. You've got small clubs now getting young kids poached from their academies at 15, 16, uh, and being compensated at the tune of 50, 50 to 100 grand, which is absolute disgrace. You've got uh, likes of Chelsea with uh, more dodgy loans than myself. Well, they got 40 players out on loan. You've got... Uh, this is this is madness. This is this is none of this makes any sense. So you basically now you got smaller clubs being used as feeder clubs for like um, imagine you're a Vitesse Arnhem, Arnhem fan. You're, you're Chelsea's feeder club. You know they they loan out seventy players to this to this club. It's not even their football club anymore. I agree the, with the that. But window, transfer I agree. window doesn't, doesn't make any sense anymore. But I, but I agree with what you're saying about those loans, but I do not see how ending the transfer window changes the way footballs went. The City Football Group own clubs all over the world. You've mm-hmm. talked about Chelsea with Vitesse Arnhem. Do you seriously think stopping the transfer window is going to stop Chelsea stockpiling their kids there? Well, let me ask you this. Let's say footballers are human beings just like everybody else. They're employees just like everybody else. Let's say you work for an employer and you for whatever reason, the test working for your employer. And someone, another company comes in and says, Callum, for your mental health and for everything else, we would like to hire you. And it's much, this is a company that's much more suitable in terms of your human values, in terms of everything else. And your employer goes, nah, you have no freedom. Of, you have no right. You have no freedom of movement. You are going to sit here until um, either your contract's up or they put a price in for you that is uh, acceptable to us, or um, you, at the very least, you have to sit here for another three, four months. Do you think that's right to treat a human being and say, you must stay at your place of employment for the next three, four months? My argument would be, when you sign a five-year contract, sure. you're, you're signing up for five years now. I know when Kieran, when the princess was on earlier, I'm sure he would say contracts aren't worth the, the paper they're written on, in so many occasions, but in my opinion, I understand the human element, understand the mental health element you're, you're talking about there, but if you sign a five-year contract and you cry six months in that you want out, for me, that's worrying. But, I mean, I, I can understand that argument if it's a TV, you know, if it's something you buy and hire purchase, if it's a car, something that's inanimate, something that's not human, but when you sign a contract, on that contract, 
never includes a trillion of variables that goes into what happens at a place of employment, right? It just is impossible to include everything in that contract. So in that contract, did you sign up to be treated a certain way by certain people? No, but you have to tolerate it. You know, what did you sign up to do? You signed up to play football for a particular team for five years, but let's say there's lots of things that are included that always are included when you go work somewhere that aren't listed on the contract that are breach of contract every single day. So for me, I think footballers are no different to any other form of employment. Yes, there's obviously a contractual element of that. And yes, of course, if a club goes out and spends a hundred million and you turn around a week later and say, I want to leave, there has to be some sort of compensation for that. I accept that. Um, and, and there should be fiscal penalties if you breach a contract, of course, because there's, you have to protect an investment. Uh, but human beings are human beings. And if a club can turn around to you and sack you in the middle of a window, can sack a manager in the middle of a window, they are the ones with all the power then. They can turn around to you and say, we can kick you out at any time, but you can't leave at any time. That is, uh, it, that is a massive inequity, and I don't think it, it, it's right for footballers to be treated that way. They're human beings. But what worries me is when you've discussed Paul Pogba in the past and others, you've said that mm. no player's bigger than the club. Surely yeah. if you open the window up all year round, you're encouraging player power. We've seen how many players go and strike at the start of a transfer window because they, don't, they want a move. Now, when that window shuts, they've got to knuckle down and get on with it. And you've seen yeah. that over the years with so many players. If you open the window all year round, Pogba can just say, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not playing again until I can leave. So what? I mean, if someone doesn't want to play for my football club, he can leave that day. I don't care. I'd rather he left that day. If Paul Pogba or anyone else comes in, the manager and says, you know what? I'm no longer committed to working here. I don't want to be here. I want to leave. Go. That's okay. I don't want to force him to stay for another three, four months where his value drops and where he's a poison. You know, he poisons the dressing room. And he's, you know, you heard guy and I will talk about Carlos Tevez, the last six months of his tenure at Manchester United. Whether you agree or disagree about him not pulling his weight about you know, being a pain in the arse in the dressing room and everything else. You don't want anyone at your place of employment who doesn't want to be there because their productivity is zero and there's really no benefit to having them there. So I actually think that's another argument for why the window should be, should be all year round if a player wants to leave. And you take, let me put it like this, Callum. If there was a tra- if the transfer window had been in place in 1982, Ferguson never would have won the league. He bought Canton in October. Right? And if he had have waited until January to bring a player in, and then, you know, Dean Dublin breaks his leg in September. He needed to have no striker. And if he would have had to wait, they wouldn't have been in contention. They weren't scoring goals. So, um, you know, in my opinion, what United may have done that summer, had they have known there was no window, or there was a window, they may have bought two or three other strikers. You know, it did rather than saying, you know, oh, we'll go with exactly what we need because we know if we need to buy something, someone, that ability is there any time of the year. So for me, I, I, I get that there's a certain compensation element, but see, this is where clubs would pay less for players because the risk of that contract being broken is, is, is far higher. Um, then, you know, you've got a player that's sitting on your books now for in January, let's say, um, Whatever happens, something happens behind the scenes, whether it's something unforeseen, um, like uh, the John Terry Wayne Bridge incident. You've got a player that is forced to come in to work every single day, and it's terrible for that particular human being. And so the only way out of that is to release them 
which cost the club millions. Instead, you should be able to turn around and say, you know what, it's best for all parties that this guy moves on or that guy moves on. And um, there's a club that wants him. There's a place of employment that makes this guy happy. I, 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 don't, I don't see the point. I also don't see the point of cup pen or anything else. I think it's absurd. I think it's an insult to a player's professionalism to assume that, um, you know, just because you played in the last round for somebody else doesn't mean you can't play in the next round. I, I really don't understand that. I think it's absurd. I agree with you on the cup tied element. On, in terms of our listeners, 66% agree with me. They say they want to keep the transfer window because it works. They're all and wrong. Cammy Hobbs has got in touch with the show to say, as a fan of a smaller club, the transfer window can be stressful enough. There is no need to make the anxiety last all year. And that's a crucial point from Cammy because if you support a Crystal yeah. Palace, is, it, it, you're, you're shaking your yeah. head, but it is. If you support Crystal yeah. Palace, they've been able to hold on to Wilfred Zaha, I would argue, because of the transfer window system. So if, that was, if, this. if that was all year round, he would be off because the pressure would be ramped up week on week on week throughout the whole season. So let me understand this. <clears throat> Let's say we've got fans that are fanatical about this show. And you have an opportunity to go do something in your life and they say, I want you to stay where you are because you bring me happiness, stay where you are. Right? And it would be unbearable if you are linked away to a better life. I mean, I'm sorry, but that doesn't from your right to happiness. And that said individual may have no idea of what's going on behind the scenes at a football club that makes a human being not want to be there. Someone else's right does not trump yours for you. you, you if their happiness is dependent upon you doing something that doesn't make you happy, then they don't have a right to tell you to do that. So as long as you, what you're doing is legal, then I, I, I empathize. But this is something that, look, I didn't want Ronaldo to leave, right? But he left. This is football. If you are supporting a football club with the expectation that the player wearing your shirt will never leave, then you're naive. And if your happiness is solely wrapped up in that player, then I suggest you have a good heart. Think about what you, you support a football team, not a football player. You know, so players come, players go. And it's their right, it's their life. And no one has the right to tell them when they can and can't go to future employment. This is why the whole Bosman thing came around. Remember, clubs were asking for fees for players out of contract, which was unconscionable. They weren't paying them. And so, quite rightly, they were brought to court and said, you, have, you don't own me as a human being. You know, this is about freedom of movement, which is fundamental to anyone with human rights. I, I disagree on, the, the, on opening it the whole year round. And, I, and again, I've talked about the anxiety of the fans, which I know you're saying mm -hmm. the players have got freedom, but football without the fans is nothing. So you need to think no, of the fans. I agree with that. But I, I agree with it. That there, there's an independent relationship, but... Fans have no right to tell a human being they can't go work somewhere else. What about the anxiety of the fans of the team that he wants to go to? Maybe their happiness is wrapped up in that player going there. I understand what you're saying there, but for, <laughs> me, but for me, disagree. As I say, player power would be ramped up in your situation. There would be no Their structure. Should be ramped up. There'd, be, there'd, be. Be, there'd be no structure. It'd be, it wouldn't be contained the way it is now. And I would go as far as saying, and I'm not saying it would work specifically the way the transfer window does for players, but there should be something else put in place to ensure managers can't be sacked willy-nilly either. Because nothing, nothing annoys me more than a manager getting a three-year contract and then the goalpost being changed after two months. I'm not saying they need to stay for a year, five years, but I, don't, I think they should get at least six months in a job. No, 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 no. Listen, if you turn around and hire an employee, right? Let's just say you hire somebody and they come in 
within the first 30 days and they do something that's utterly egregious, right? Why should they be protected any more than the guy in the street? I agree if with you if it's outrageous. Be for, for nothing, why should a football manager be guaranteed six months? Maybe that football guy, that individual is doing something that is clearly detrimental to the football club. And let's be honest, this stuff goes on. We've spoken to people in the game that we can't talk about here about some things that managers have done at football clubs that quite frankly is a disgrace. You know, um, let's put it like this, right? Imagine Sir Alex Ferguson's another guy, some other, other individual, and you're taking the owners to court over a horse, right? You don't think that they have a right to, to terminate that guy? I mean, you, you, just because you get a contract, uh, it doesn't mean you should be given uh, any guarantee of employment. Look, it's always contingent upon certain goals being met. Imagine you're a football fan and you've got somebody at your football club. We've just talked about the anxiety of fans. And the particular manager doesn't represent the club's values. Whatever, he's done something utterly horrendous, right? Um, so, you know, my, something like Adam Johnson. You have to keep that guy in employment? No, I, I agree. I agree in the terms of if it's catastrophic or something yeah, so, legal, then I totally agree they have to go immediately, same as they would in, in other walks of life. Tom, they're well compensated for the termination, which is unlike anyone else in employment. Most people get sacked for nothing and they're, and they're left with their, the wages that they get that week. So um, this is the game. This is the game they, they're in. And, you know, I, I, I understand your point, but they're, they're, this idea that they're entitled to some form of protection that they again in the street isn't, I don't agree with that. That's fair play. We'll agree to disagree in that one. Something that I know we're both passionate about, we've talked about this over the last few weeks when we've been planning our shows, is the idea of the transfer market and the idea that journalists or one particular individual can be in the know for every single major club in the world. I know you're very passionate about this as well. Well, look, <clears throat> there's an unfair expectation put on people. Right? Just imagine... Whatever line of work you're in, let's imagine you're the Manchester United chief executive, right? Just we'll use that as an example. You would be more clued in to what's going on in the football world than anybody else, right? When I mean anybody else, I mean as a supporter or a journalist, because you, you, you know, you rightly should know what's going on with your competitors and everything else. But even they don't know everything that's going on. You know, when Gareth Bale sent for Real Madrid, Edward would find out sitting in his office. The idea that we've got people on the internet that are in the know, that know what's going on at 90% of football clubs and transfers, it's just absolute nonsense. Think about that for a second. Why would clubs, what are they doing? Are they calling a guy and saying, hey, hey, guess what? We are about to send and you need to know this because you're the internet guy that everybody needs to know. It's just absurd. Most people have a small network of contacts that they're actually, it's very, very difficult, by the way, to build those contacts and build that trust where people will tell you what's going on. So you, you, you usually get a handful of guys, maybe a couple, right? Like Duncan Castles, for example, 100%, because everything he has comes from one guy. It comes from George Mendes. That makes sense to me. Now, if he's reporting on every move across the world with 14 different agents, that makes no sense to me. Why would they all confide in him? Impossible that you could grow that network of contacts, right? So most people that are in the know know a couple of guys. That's it. Right. And by the way, the vast majority of people who get information that is actually accurate can't talk about it. Right. And so that's one of the frustrating things. So usually when someone is leaking a transfer, it's because the individual wants you to leak it. 
And here's the problem with that, as Duncan Castles has found out, agents don't always tell the truth. So you're often used as a vehicle for misinformation. So the idea that there's in the nose on the internet is absurd. <laughs> and when all the newspapers report the same thing, it's been leaked by someone at the football club who is high up, who they don't second source, almost no transfer second source, where it's just not important enough, um, by someone they trust. Simple as that. So um, it's not a coincidence that they all woke up and heard it, you know, and have multiple different contacts. It's one guy. And the idea that there's anyone in the nowhere there across all different transfers is just absolutely absurd and just is, defies reality. Totally agree. And the reason I agree with you, and you, as I say, the reason we're both passionate about this is over the years of BTP and since I've started CFB and, and got a, a banking networks together, so much of the stuff you're told you could not utter because the moment you utter it, your, your credibility yeah. with that source is completely gone. You're done. Right. And, and right. rightly so, because some, some information is confidential. When it mm -hmm. comes to whether it's a manager under pressure, maybe there's plans to replace that manager or a transfer or sometimes an internal disciplinary issue. There's mm -hmm. reasons these things aren't leaked. And that's why I have to say I chuckle. I'm not going to name any names, but when you see on Twitter, a certain journalist or certain individual tweets one thing, everybody goes, oh, it must be true, it must be true. Mm -hmm. And you know this the amount of times. A journalist, certain individuals might only tweet that when they're 90% sure it's going to happen. So that more often than not, it looks as if they're right. But if you go through the record books of some of these in-the-know guys, or most of them, people forget about the near misses. But also, in, in their defense, when you're reporting a transfer, you're reporting the information that you have. But bear in mind, it's fluid. So absolutely anything can change at any minute for that to happen. I mean, I talked in January, I think it was January, about United December, it was Pochettino. Yeah. And I've got people on Twitter telling me Pochettino didn't happen. Yeah, because nothing has changed since December. Nothing. <laughs> I mean, and, and by the way, if I could tell you with 100% certainty it's was going to happen, I'd be a very wealthy man with the bookmakers, right? All people can do is give you information. Exactly. Well, let's say anyone involved in that decides to change their mind for whatever reason. Is that the journalist's fault? Is that the reporter's fault? It's a, and, and I expect people that are reading this to have enough common sense to know this, to know that Absolutely. these things change, right? And so the information that you're getting is correct at the time. But listen, a lot can happen between now and the end of the season, as we know. So, you know, I can guarantee you that what was true for a lot of football clubs in February is not true today, you know, because a lot has changed. So, um, anyway, it... it Listen, there are some wonderful resources out there. My very, very good friend, David Amial, is one of the best in the business. Who, Absolutely. Uh, who is just a total gentleman and never told a lie about football in his life. I, I can't speak just personally, but I know that he's never reported on anything for clickbaits, you know, for, for likes, clicks, retweets, nothing. Everything that guy does is sourced. And, and, and obviously, he is reporting what somebody else is reporting from, with DiMarzio. But, um, you know, and they do, they're probably the best at it. But for the, for the vast majority of people that think there's people in the know that are some random Twitter account. <laughs> you know, actually, let me say that there probably is some people in the know with 100 or 200 followers because they're not putting that information online, right? And so, uh, but anybody that's repeatedly putting inside information on the line, you can guarantee is not in the know. Absolutely. And to round the show off today, one last quick snippet I want to talk about is mental health. You're very mm -hmm. passionate about it, as am I. Yes. 
this is in the UK. There was a program this week called Harry's Heroes. Paul Merson opened up on his problem with drinking and gambling. He said mm -hmm. he's not he's not um, been drinking or gambling now for over a year. He's in a really good place. And former Aston Villa and England player Lee Hendry opened up on his depression and the fact that he tried to end his own life unsuccessfully. And when he woke up the next morning, he just thought, thank God I didn't because of the kids. Mm -hmm. And there's so many people out, out there, Phil, yes. listening to this. There's lots of pressure put on footballers at the moment. You said earlier, and I will echo it, footballers are human beings. Troy Deeney, mm -hmm. for instance, has got yeah. a young son with breathing problems. Yeah. He should not be put under pressure to play football in the current climate. And I think when it comes to mental health, we need to remember that no matter what your paycheck is, no matter what your professional role is, you can be affected as well and support is out there. And please contact us at BTP if you are struggling. Yes, absolutely. And one of the best uh, comments on this was Simon Jordan, who quite rightfully illustrated the problem with the media and how they report is they always juxtapose these mental health issues with um, how much money someone makes. You know, Aaron Lennon galloped. Um, how dare you mentally suffer because you make money? And that is just a disgraceful uh, character assassination of anyone. Money has absolutely nothing to do with how a human being experiences the world. And what goes on inside their head that determines their experience. Um, there are so many things that goes on. It's the most, the human brain is the most complex instrument in the universe. It's what we understand absolutely everything with. Um, we're at a very primitive stage in understanding mental health. Um, we don't really understand why human beings feel the way they feel. It goes in, there's so many trillions of different variables that contribute to that, such as your, 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 you know, addiction, your, 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 your emotional issues, your social condition, and all these different things. So quite rarely, the Echo Calm sentiment, give us a shout at BTP um, or at CFB, uh, and we'll try to help. And I've got stuff coming up on the website that I mentioned in my Man United podcast that will hopefully help also. So yeah, we couldn't agree more, Calm. Absolutely. And I just want to thank everyone listening to the Global Football Show. Remember, Phil and Martin are back with the Man United show. That's going to be back long term, which we're all very excited about. Martin and Phil do a great job. Phil and I are teaming up for the Global Football Show, but there's going to be many projects in the future where mm -hmm. Phil and Martin will work on them, Phil and I will work on them, and Martin and I will work on them. So please mm -hmm. look out for the expanded BTP, and please join us next week on the Global Football Show.